and also begin a new series, James chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 13 through 18. 13 through 18. If you're there, say amen. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a, very, or with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, prayers of faith, prayers of faith. Let's pray as we begin together. Father, um, we come to you boldly, not because of our own righteousness, our own abilities. God, we come boldly in the name of Jesus. We come boldly in the name of the one who went before us in all things, the firstborn of all creation, the first fruits of the redemption that you promised. God, we have his name upon us, and so we have access. And so, God, as we look at your word today, knowing that you speak to us in your word, may you encourage our hearts where we're weak. May you challenge us where we're caught in sin and fill us with faith that we can pray prayers of faith that bring glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, Jewish history tells us uh, through their various writings of the rabbis the legend of Honi. Now, Honi was living in the first century BC, so a few generations before Jesus came, and it was during this severe drought and famine in Jerusalem. Everybody's panicking. Obviously, it, it had been a while since people had seen rain and and it had even been a longer time since they had seen God show up in their midst. They hadn't had a prophet in four centuries. There were very few miracles. It seemed as if God was like this distant memory for the people of Jerusalem. Everyone except this eccentric man named Honi who lived outside the city gates in Jerusalem. And Honi dared to pray. He dared to come into the city gates and he, he you know, brought his awkward self. He was told to be like John the Baptist. I mean, he's just this strange man who lived outside the city gates. But he believed in the power of prayer. And so he brings his six-foot staff. He walks into the city. And in the middle of the marketplace with people gathered all around him, he begins to draw a circle around his body in the sand. Honey drops down to the ground on his knees, lifts his hands to heaven, and he begins to cry out to God, and he says, Lord, hear my cry. He says, I promise before you and your great name that I will not move from this circle until you've shown mercy upon your children. I mean, that's a bold prayer. 
God, I'm not going to move. I'm, I'm not going anywhere outside of this circle until you bring rain. People started laughing. People started mocking him. And he kept praying. And he prayed. And he prayed. And then the clouds began to form. And the first time in years, rain falls in Jerusalem. And the farther he prayed, or the, the, the greater he prayed, the, the, the more the rain poured down until the rain came so hard it was flooding the city. And Honey had to switch his prayer and say, God, stop the rain. And that day he got up from his little circle. He took his strange self and his staff back outside the city gates and kind of lived in oblivion the rest of his life. And he became the legend of Honey. And now people, of course, in the city. They, they were divided over what this meant. The religious leaders thought it was a coincidence. They actually tried to excommunicate him from the synagogue. But the poor folks who were living off of that rain and now had another year's worth of crops to survive, he became a hero. And they wrote his name down in the history books as this was the day. The day that, that hope was restored. The day that God's power was shown through prayer. Now, what does prayer actually do? I mean, it's a question when you hear a, when you hear a story like Honey, and many of you, maybe you've been in the church for a while, or you're brand new to the Bible, you hear a story like that, and, and you wonder, what does prayer actually do? What, what good is prayer? And I've heard that question in the church, I've heard it outside the church, I've heard it in my own heart at times, wondering, what good is it that I'm praying? And sometimes you hear a story like this, and you wonder... I mean, why doesn't that happen in my life? Now, some of y'all, you might be like, I, I've got stories in my life and, and I'm praising God because I resonate with that. But others of you here, you're wondering, that doesn't seem to be the story of prayer in my life. And prayer is hard. It's confusing. It's mysterious. There's, there's lots to this life of prayer. But there's something, I think, deep within all of us that we we call out for that. There's, there's something within us that we want to see the power of God in prayer. In fact, Eugene Peterson, who is an author and longtime pastor, uh, he said in the beginning of his pastoral ministry, when he was younger, he, he used to think people came to church for the sermon. And then he started to think people came to church for the children's ministry or the music or some other program, right? But he said, the longer I pastored, I realized the reason people come and at least stay is because people want to know how to pray. This man writing that in his 70s, he said, I look back over my life and I realize people just want to connect with God. And they're hoping the local church can be the place where they do that. And we want help with connecting with God. There's something within us that, that prayer seems like it should be central in our life. There should be power in our prayer life. And so we come to this last sermon in, in the book of James, and we've been calling this series uh, A Faith That Works. A Faith That Works. And, and if you've been following along with us, you've been seeing that James has been writing to this group of Christians who are going through severe suffering. I mean, severe persecution, and if you know anything about the praying life, you know that prayer is learned in the crucible of suffering. It's often in the worst times of your life that you learn to pray the best. 
And so it makes perfect sense that James is writing this letter to people who are severely suffering, and it's so practical. The whole letter, if you never read the book of James, go back and read the whole book. You could do it in just a few minutes. It's so practical, and he ends on this practical call to prayer. And a specific kind of prayer in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of a moment where it seems like everything couldn't get worse. He says, I want you to pray with bold faith. I want you to pray the kind of prayers people look at you funny. And so I want to ask that today. What what does that look like? What does true uh, faith-filled prayer look like? So if you're taking notes, first of all, the prayer of faith is an audacious prayer. And this is the first point, an audacious prayer. Look at me at verse 13. James says this. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, I love this because James asks three questions about three different situations. He says, you know, are are you going through a hard time? Is life really troublesome right now? All right, pray. Is everything going great and, and life is better than you expected even? All right, pray. Are you sick and you're, you're tired and you don't know if you're going to be able to make it? All right, pray. I mean, James has given us this picture of the praying life where it's not just, you know, when things are bad, now I pray, or when things are good, now I pray. But he's saying every time in your life is a good time to pray. Any time in your life. He, he's giving this picture of what it looks like to live your whole life before the face of God. That God is interacting with you and you are interacting with Him in every moment of your life. But then he gets real specific and he, he burrows down into the situation of someone being sick. And he said, if someone is sick, call together the elders of the church and have the elders pray for him and anoint him with oil. Now, if you're new to the Bible, that might seem kind of odd. Why is he going to the kitchen to grab some olive oil to pour on somebody? What does this mean, right? Well, it's symbolic. All throughout the Bible, oil was used as a sign to set someone apart, to set someone apart for God and for God's purposes. And so often it would be leaders who were, uh, you know, kings or other leaders, or it would be somebody who, who was being set apart for a certain task or something like that. Well, here James is saying, I want you to set somebody apart with the anointing of oil for prayer, right? And just like the water of baptism, where the water doesn't actually save you, but it points you towards the one who does save you, it's the same thing with the oil. He's saying the oil doesn't actually heal you, but it points you to the God who does heal you. And so here he's saying, I want you to pray, and I want you to anoint with oil. But here's what gets me in this passage. I mean, he assumes that there's this culture of faith-filled prayer in the church. right? James writes this as if this is normal church life that the church would gather together and pray these faith-filled prayers bold enough, audacious enough to believe that God would heal somebody. And so he believes that the local church is a place where you ask God boldly beyond expectations. Why? Because prayer is this audacious invitation to God. You're, You're being invited to speak with God himself. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus was on his way out of Jericho, 
right? And Jesus is walking out of Jericho, and there's crowds of people around him, and on the road out of Jericho, there's a blind beggar. His name is Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus from the roadside, and he's sitting down begging for for money and food, and he cries out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he cries out again, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now the crowds are you know, following Jesus, trying to get this man to move out of the way and stop making noise. Even the disciples rebuke him. The disciples are like, hush, hush, don't, don't bother Jesus. He's busy. Of course, it didn't stop Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus gets even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus turns around, he looks at Bartimaeus, and he tells his disciples, bring him here. And so Bartimaeus leaps up off the ground. The disciples walk him over. I don't know what they said to him, but they were probably grouchy and grumbling. I can't believe Jesus is going to talk to this guy. And then Jesus looks at this blind beggar who's completely dependent on everyone else around him. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus' question to blind Bartimaeus. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, it seems odd, doesn't it? That Bartimaeus, who's clearly blind and clearly poor, why are you asking what he wants, what he needs? I know why. It's because Jesus was inviting Bartimaeus into that audacious invitation to say, to speak, to to verbalize to God Himself what He wants. He was saying, "I'm, I'm inviting you to be bold enough to ask God for something crazy like to make your eyes see. What if what if Jesus asked you that same question today? What if Jesus, just like with blind Bartimaeus, He came to you and He said, what do you want me to do for you? I mean, some of you, it makes you a little uncomfortable. Makes you a little uncomfortable that God would say, what do you want me to do for you? Some of us have been suffering tremendously and, and wondering if God even notices us in our pain. Has He forgotten about us? Some of us have been holding on to a dream or a calling in our life that God put in our heart years ago and and we haven't even talked about it because we just gave up on it. Some of us have been hurt so deeply we don't know how to deal with the pain and so we've pushed it to the side and we've stopped asking God. What if Jesus asked you today, what do you want me to do for you? I think... In order for you to answer that question, you have to believe in the power of prayer. I think in order for you to answer that question honestly, you have to believe that prayer changes things. Like prayer is not just speaking to the wind, but it is speaking to God. And Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Prayer moves the arm that moves the world. It was the prayer of Abraham that changed God's plans for judgment upon Sodom. It was the prayer of Joshua that caused the sun to stand still and bring victory in battle. It was the prayer of of Hannah that caused her barren womb to give birth to Samuel. It was the prayer of David that restored his soul after his crushing fall into sin. It was the prayer of Hezekiah that healed his body and added years to his life. It was the prayer of Peter that set him and the apostles free from the prison chains. Prayer changes things. It changes things. 
And so it, it, it allows Jesus to say crazy things, crazy things like John 14, ask anything in my name and I'll do it for you. Jesus said that. Go back and read it. John 14, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. Anything, Jesus? Yeah, anything. I'll never forget a pastor preaching on that text, and he said this. He said, that makes us uncomfortable because we don't believe that God is a big boy. We feel like we have to like, ease God into what we really want. And so we, we don't really believe that God is big enough, He's strong enough to, to figure out how He wants to respond. And so what Jesus is saying, and I, I believe that's so true because it's Jesus' heart that He's trying to get us into the game Jesus is inviting us into this prayer life to say, I want you to ask anything. Ask for big things. Ask for small things. Ask for crazy things. Ask for anything. Just ask. Just get into this life of prayer and do your life by prayer by asking your Heavenly Father. It's so much better if you ask than not ask. It's so much better that you just talk to Him than pretend like you have to coddle Him. God is not inviting you to, to put together a PowerPoint presentation and convince Him that your idea is the best idea. He says, just pray. And remember who you're praying to. You're praying to God, who can do the impossible. He can do the impossible. But doing life like this through prayer requires the next part, which is dependence. Dependence. This is the second point of dependent prayer. Look at James, what he says next, verse 15. He says, in the, power, or sorry, in the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, we've got to slow down and take this uh, carefully, right? James draws this connection between sin and sickness between sin and sickness. Now, careful here. Jesus was very cautious when the disciples and the Pharisees wanted to name somebody's sickness a cause or, or, or caused by their sin. Right? You got to be careful here. What, what James is not saying is that every time somebody is sick, there's some secret sin in their life that they need to be forgiven of. Right? We live in a fallen world full of sin, and because of our fallen sinful world, we all experience sickness, not necessarily because of our particular sins. Does that make sense? Right? So, so that means that not every sickness is caused by your particular sins, and not every sickness is guaranteed to be healed, at least in this life. Sometimes you get your healing on the other side of death. Sometimes... Sickness is just a mystery. Sometimes there isn't an answer, but James won't allow us to, to get off that easy. He, he does say there's this connection between faith and prayer, and, and, and many people over the years have tried to make sense of this, and I'm going to try to quickly give you a few options that I don't think are biblical and then give you what I think James is saying. All right. So three options. The first one is there's this idea of doubt-free faith. This is the person that believes that, that faith is all about getting rid of your doubts, pushing those to the side, pretending like they're not there, and mustering up enough faith that God will be pleased with your faith so He'll do what you say. 
right? The, the idea there is that you would, you would get rid of all the doubts, all the insecurities, and you would just pretend like everything is perfect and everything is right. And if you can get all that stuff away, then God has to do what you say if it's a pure faith. And so if it doesn't happen when you pray for it, now you start looking around, all right, who here did not believe? Somebody here had doubts. And we're going to try this again. It's not biblical. And it's dangerous. The second one is this declaring faith. Where you're really not praying to God. You're, you're speaking to the issue. And so you may have heard it by like declare and decree or name it and claim it or, or whatever. But you believe that your words have so much power that they can create a new reality. And again, the Bible speaks that our words do have power, but they're not God's words. And so the whole idea of prayer is that you're asking God to move on the situation. You're not saying I have the power to move on the situation. So declaring faith misses the whole point of prayer is to ask God to intervene. So I believe what James is really saying here is, is a dependent prayer. A dependent prayer is where you say prayer gains its strength not from its intensity, but from its object. In other words, my, my prayer and my faith has power not because my faith is strong or my faith is big, but because my God is big and strong. But because the, the one that I put my faith in, He has the power. He has the ability. And so it's the object of my faith that makes my faith have power. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, you're putting your faith in your faith. You're putting your faith in your ability to believe. And so your faith is in you, not in Christ. But real faith, listen, real faith is dependent. Real faith is dependent not on our circumstances, but the God who can overcome our circumstances. And so it doesn't draw hope from what Martin Luther King called superficial optimism which is this idea that, you know, not, nothing's really bad out there. We'll just pretend like it's not that bad, and we'll be optimistic about the future. That's not biblical. Nor does real faith bow down to, to crippling cynicism, which would be the opposite, which is, you know, everything's terrible. It is what it is. Nothing can change. Why even pray? What's the point? That's not faith. That's fatalism. And it's rooted in our cynical hearts. Right? And listen, prayer is choked out by cynicism. If you want to destroy your prayer life, become cynical. There was a Canadian airline recently that set up a uh, virtual Santa in one of their like, passenger areas where they're loading on the plane. And it was fascinating to me because of how the process worked. Uh, they've got this screen as you check on or you, you scan your ticket to get onto the plane. And you, you scan your ticket, and on the screen pops up this virtual Santa who says, Merry Christmas, and then he asks you, what do you want for Christmas? And of course, the kids who are there, they think it's amazing, because Santa's on the screen, and he's asking them what they want for Christmas. And so they're telling Santa, oh, I want a tablet, I want a bike, I want this toy, I want that toy. But the adults, it's fascinating, you watch the video, the adults, some of them... They, they take it serious and kind of play along. Some of them just think it's cute. Some of them think it's ridiculous and don't even respond. Some people are asking for socks, boxers. One guy got bold. He asked for a television. 
Now get this, none of them knew on the other side of the screen was a whole team from the airline who were writing down all of their requests and they were five hours away at their destination. And so 175 employees immediately leave their headquarters, go to the store, they buy all the things that they wrote down, they wrap their presents and they put them at the baggage claim. And when they get off the plane, everything that they asked for was waiting for them, wrapped with their name on it. You go back and you watch the video, and you know, it's this heartwarming video. People are so excited. They're surprised. The kids are playing with their toys. The guy sees his big TV, right? (laughs) And when I saw this, I'm thinking, man, the people who asked for socks, (laughs) if they only knew, if they only asked, but they didn't ask because they were cynical. I would have been cynical. Santa's on a screen, who cares? If they only knew, right? We stop asking because we've been disappointed before. I mean, let's be honest, you've prayed for healing and then your loved one passed away. You've prayed for help and then things got worse. You prayed for your marriage and it ended in divorce. Now here's where the great mystery of prayer comes in, where we don't really know how it works. We're not told by God how all the inner workings of His will and our will and prayer and all that stuff, you'll get tangled up in a knot. But we know this, God is good. God is good. And so if God gave us everything we asked for, prayer would have power, but it would be destructive power. It would be used in so many ways that we wouldn't even comprehend how evil it would become. And so it's only God's mercy. Listen, it's only God's mercy that he would say no in any of our prayers. The only reason he would tell his children no is because of his love for us. And so Tim Keller says it this way. He says, God will either, I love this, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. Did you catch that? God will either give us what we ask for or he will give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knew. And listen, the the cynical heart, the cynical heart is always the, the idealist who's been disappointed. The cynic is always the idealist who, who thought they knew everything that was right for them. And so you have in your mind, like, this is what I really need, and I need to have this, and I need this to happen, and I need this, and I need this, and I need this. And if God would just follow my plan, then everything would work out because I'm the one that kind of knows how everything should happen. And then you ask him, and he doesn't do it because you had this idealistic view of how everything would work out, and you were optimistic that the world just fell into your lap. And now you're broken because it doesn't. And you're disappointed. And it's all of us. We've been there where you're convinced you're right, and then you're not. And we're cynical. God can't be good. God can't be trusted. He can't be for me. He must be against me. Why why even pray? It it doesn't do anything anyways. This, This is where Jesus invites us in back to our Heavenly Father with what he calls a childlike spirit. Right? Cynicism is the opposite of a childlike spirit. 
In a cynical heart, you are independent. You, you make your own decisions and you do your own thing. And if God doesn't want to do with what you want to do, then forget him. But a childlike heart is fully dependent. A childlike heart comes to your father and you just keep asking. Whether he says no or not doesn't affect you at all. I mean, if you've been around kids, they don't stop. They just keep asking and asking and asking. I love when Jesus came to one guy and, and uh, he, he was going to heal him and he asked him, do you believe? And the man said, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Help me with my unbelief. That's, that's the childlike spirit. It's to say, I, I don't have it all figured out. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't even know what's best, but I'm going to keep asking you because to me, this seems like the best thing. To me, this seems like it would be great if you would move in this way, but Father, I want to just be with you and I want to ask you. I want to ask anything. I want to be free to engage with you as my Heavenly Father. What if Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What would you say if you had no cynicism? What would you pray for if you were never disappointed. See, this kind of childlike spirit has to trust in an all-powerful God. This is the last point, a powerful prayer. Look at the end of verse 16. Uh, he goes on to say, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain. And the earth bore its fruit. James recalls the story of Elijah. And Elijah lived in one of the most evil times in Israel's history under King Ahab. And King Ahab had, had you know, basically led the, the country into this terrible season of idolatry and, and spiritual adultery. And there was so much destruction. It had gotten so bad that God told Elijah to pray for a drought. He's like, all right, we're going to get these people's attention. We're going to bring judgment upon the land so that they'll come back to me in repentance. So I want you to pray for a drought. Elijah prays for the drought. It happens for three and a half years, no rain. Three and a half years, famine. Of course, the whole purpose of it was to call people back, but Ahab was not excited. The people weren't excited. It was a very similar scenario to what James has been describing the whole book of James. Right? If you've been with us or you read the book of James, James has been dealing with this issue of being double-minded. He's been talking about their, their struggle as they're suffering to want to give in to the world versus follow God. They're, they're double-minded. And so Elijah comes to Israel and he asks the same question. This is Elijah's question. He says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If the Lord is God, follow him. But then when he gives them that, what does he do? He prays. And Elijah goes up on Mount Carmel. He falls down on his knees. He raises his hands to heaven. And he calls out to God for rain. He cries out, oh Lord, bring the rain, bring the rain. He prays once, nothing happens. He prays twice, nothing happens. Three times, nothing happens. Four times, nothing happens. Five times, nothing happens. Six times, nothing happens. He keeps praying. The seventh time, he begins to look out and he, 
he sees along the horizon where the sea is this cloud that's beginning to form. And he says it was in the shape of a man's hand. He says this is the hand of God coming to bring mercy upon us. And the more he prayed, the cloud grew until the sky was full of dark clouds and rain fell upon the land for the first time in three and a half years. But listen, here's why James brings up the story of Elijah. Because the story of Elijah is is an example of God's power and prayer, but for a specific purpose, repentance and faith. This is, this is what he's saying, that, that God is, is excited, he's eager, he's willing to answer the prayer of faith for this purpose, that it would bring about our repentance and faith, right? Prayer is powerful in line with God's purposes, that when we line up with what God wants for our life, he's saying, I will answer that prayer every single time. And so Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he was with his disciples and everybody's gathered around the table and he's telling them, one of you is going to betray me. Of course, Peter stands up, you know the story. Peter says, oh, it's not me, Lord. I would never betray you. I would never do anything like that. I'll be with you till death. Jesus says, well, actually, let's talk about that. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows three times. What? No, no, not me. I'll never do that. I'm faithful, Lord. I don't know what you're talking about. No, 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 Peter. You don't know this, but Satan is after your soul, is what he says. He says, the enemy is after you, but get this but I've been praying for you, Peter. I've been praying for you. And so no matter how dark it gets, no matter how terrible your sin, no matter how ugly what what your life looks like, I've been praying for you, Peter. No matter how hopeless it seems, I've been praying for you with this purpose, Peter. Your repentance and faith. Your repentance and faith and that prayer by Jesus. You talk about power, that's a powerful prayer. Right? He was praying for Peter's faith not to fail. Not that Peter wouldn't fall. Peter's about to fall. Peter's about to give in to exactly what Jesus said. But no matter how bad it got, no matter what he did, his failings would never be final. Whatever failure may come, it wouldn't be ultimate. It wouldn't be the last word. Whatever sin may entangle his heart, it wouldn't win. Whatever fear may overcome him, it wouldn't be the victory. Because Jesus was praying Jesus was praying for him as John, uh, or 1 John 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Right? His faith is sustained on the shoulders of Jesus' prayers. Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus, our burden bearer. He's our great sympathizer. He's our faithful interceder. He's the rock of our salvation. He's the horn of our victory. He's the only one who can lift us up. He offered up His life on the cross as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He suffered in our place that we might know God. But on the third day, He was raised from the dead so that what? He could ascend to the Father and pray for us. His work didn't stop in the tomb. His work continues on the throne. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where He continues to intercede. Hebrews 7, he's able to say to the othermost, those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for us. Where's Jesus? He's praying for you. It's the joy of his life to pray for you. When you're down in the depths of sin, he's praying for you. When you're up in the mountain of success, he's praying for you. When you're in the muck of suffering, he's praying for you. And so he says to you today, is anyone among you suffering? I'm praying for you. 
Is anyone among you cheerful? I'm praying for you. Is anyone among you sick? I'm praying for you. Right? The great hope of the gospel is not the faithfulness of your prayers. The great hope of the gospel is the faithfulness of his prayers. That the God of the universe is praying for you according to every perfect purpose that God has for you. He's praying for you. And so today, as we close this message, I, I want to ask you to, to consider the, the amazing invitation, the, the audacious invitation that Jesus extends to you to pray. To pray. To speak to the one who has the world in his hands, who shapes history through his thoughts. To pray. He's inviting you. He, he says, come to me with, with all that you have. Come to me. There's no greater time to pray than right now, any time, as we come to our Father. Let's pray together. Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask as we go through so many things that discourage us, so many things that we have no words for. And often, as the Scriptures say, we, we have nothing. And so you pray for us, Spirit, with groanings that are beyond us. It's so amazing to think that, that when we have no energy, when we have no words, you are full of life, full of power, full of the right things to say. And so we lean on you today whether we find ourselves in a place where we're cheerful and we're giving praise, or we find ourselves in the depths of suffering and difficulty and we are asking questions and we're lamenting, whatever it may be, God, we, we lift them to you. We know that the prayers of the saints are like incense that bring joy to you. And so we pray you would give us the, the boldness to pray big prayers, to not give up, Pray always, as you said, Lord. As the woman who was seeking justice from the unjust judge, you said, how much more will your heavenly Father give you justice? You say, ask anything in my name. And so, Lord, we want to come to you today, continuing to pursue you persistently, trusting you, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our faith, but trusting you, the one we look to, who can do all things above and beyond everything we could ask or imagine. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's